Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you. Uh, we'll be in 1 Timothy 2 today, so you can grab a Bible and turn with me there. And uh, if you've got a copy of the Scriptures, then that's where we'll be. So you can look there. And if you don't, underneath the chair in front of you, you should be able to find a blue Bible. And you can look at page 576 in those Bibles. Um, any parents that have kids up through fifth grade, if you'd like for them to remain here, that's fine. Or if you'd like them to go to some age-specific teaching now, that's offered out in the back in the patio. There'll be some volunteers there ready. Uh, we Christians are people who have come to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that through Him we come to the Father, and He is our great Father, perfect in every way. Everything that He does is right. Everything He says is true. And His full disposition towards His own is that of goodness. So I pray this morning that we'll receive what He has for us with faith and love and obedience and confidence that every word of God proves uh, true. Last Sunday, we began uh, really the first of two messages dealing with verses um, 8 through 15. And so uh, if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to get on YouTube or go to our podcast and listen to it. Essentially, the first half of that message last week, I tried to introduce the topic, and there's just not time to do that again today. And so uh, we're jumping right into uh, the paragraph. This is an ancient yet timeless letter, and we're considering God's gender design for His church. Um, we spoke at length last week about verse 8, uh, namely speaking to the men in the room. Uh, ladies, today we'll look at the rest of the passage, which is especially God's word to you. So look with me, if you would, at verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let the women learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was born first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is uh, certainly the most uh, often written about passage in what's called the pastoral epistles, so 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus today, and certainly the most controversial one we'll look at. We, uh, of course, cannot exhaust all the implications and applications of these verses, so my objective today will be to, to try to encourage you toward the meaning of the passage, and then hopefully just be an encouragement toward lots of conversations about these verses within gospel communities and individual relationships. But we said last week that this passage contains three clear sections, each saying something different. 
in the first section, verse 8, we see that God instructs us to be a praying church family led by holy men in peaceful prayer. So that was our main objective last Sunday. The second section is verses 9 and 10, where God instructs women to seek a godliness and adornment of modesty and good works. And so we'll think about that today. And then finally, the longest section, verses 11 to 15, is where God instructs us to be submissive to his design for church leadership roles. And so that second and third section is what we'll be dealing with. In all of it, though, there is a dominant point being made. That point is simply that both men and women must follow God's gendered design for the church. Both men and women must follow God's gendered design for his church. And really, when we come to this paragraph, it's like we're stepping into another world because it is so different than what we hear in and out of life today. In the wisdom of God, we are told that we have an embodied existence, that you are part material and part immaterial, and the two go together, and that part of our embodiedness is that we are made either male or female. And this gendered design is not accidental nor incidental. Being male or female is part of the essence of who we are, and it has a direct bearing on how we obey God together. While men and women are equals, while men and women are made in the image of God, and it takes both genders to image God, we are not interchangeable. By God's design, there's something to being a woman that's different than being a man. There's something to being a man that's different than being a woman. And for this morning, we're going to think first about modesty and good works in verses 9 and 10. Um, in many settings, there is an unspoken but crushing burden placed upon women to look like supermodels. Supermodels, of course, don't actually look like supermodels. They are manipulated and airbrushed just like all the rest of us. But women often have this exhausting noose around their neck anyway that says, I'm supposed to look like that. But it should not be so among the people of God. Ladies, you are not your looks. If there is any place on the planet where you ought to be freed from appearance and attire as your driving dominant concern, it ought to be here, the weekly gathering of the people of God to worship our King. And yet, how often we fall short of this reality. Let's take big steps, though, toward it today. How? Well, that's what these verses are about. That's what these verses are speaking to, verses 9 and 10. They direct us toward a principle and a specific cultural application of the principle. It's important that you separate the two. They're not the same thing. There's a principle and there's a cultural application of that principle. The principle is that godly women who this church is full of should give themselves to modesty in appearance and generosity in good works. 
That is the, what's called the supracultural, so above culture, it would apply to all people everywhere. That is the supracultural normative principle of verses 9 and 10. That's big terminology, but it matters to understanding the passage. That is, all women in all churches everywhere are to be marked by a modesty in appearance and a generosity in good works. What that looks like will vary culture to culture. So the principle we've talked about, the cultural application of that principle is here in the text. Braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire. If you look around the room and see any women in braided hair, they are not in sin. That is the cultural application in the first century of the principle. It is not the direct command. So think with me first about the principle. Ladies, there's nothing inappropriate about giving attention to your appearance. There's nothing wrong with enjoying dressing in nice clothes and generally seeking to do the best with whatever it is that God's given you. Nevertheless, those very natural and appropriate tendencies can quickly become consuming for you and distracting for others. The principle is meant to help us avoid those pitfalls. As you know, an inordinate desire for attractiveness can take over your life, consuming your thoughts and time and money. That can happen in men, of course, but they have far less to work with. Therefore, it <laughs> happens more infrequently. So there is a sense in which this can become consuming for you, but it can also become distracting for others. That's especially true when sensual forms of attire are pursued that actually encourage people to gawk. Thankfully, God's daughters are taught to do their part to avoid those pitfalls. As verse 9 puts it, Ladies, you're to adorn yourself in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. If you read the passage closely, self-control is a, a, a core principle in the passage. It starts the section and ends the section. Now, I'll leave the specifics up to you, sisters, to work out in your conversations with one another about what are the cultural forms that would be appropriate today and the cultural forms that would be inappropriate today. But one comment might be edifying for us all. We live in an extremely sexualized world. Everything, pay attention to the advertisements you see in the next week. Everything from food, to shampoo, to the car you drive, will be advertised to you through sexual language. We've just come to think that that's normal, and yet it ought not be so here, and it ought not be so among us. 
Sex is good and right in a particular context, but it has nothing to do with shampoo or food. It's possible to look nice, even attractive, without being immodest. And whatever that is, that's what you want to aim for. When one's focus moves off of an inordinate attention to appearance, it, of course, frees up time, money, and mental energy to be spent on other things, to be spent on, namely, good works. And so the principle here, ladies, is that godly women give themselves to modesty and appearance and generosity in good works. The cultural application of that is given in verse, of the principle is given in verse 9, namely braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire. Those things today do not necessarily communicate what they did in the first century. That's why those are cultural examples and not the principle itself. Biblical scholar George Knight is helpful here. Here's a quotation. He says, uh, the reason for Paul's prohibition of elaborate hairstyles, ornate jewelry, and extremely expensive clothing becomes clear when one reads in the contemporary literature of the inordinate time, expense, and effort that elaborately braided hair and jewels demanded. Not just as ostentatious display, but also as a mode of dress of courtesans and harlots. So there's actually a lot written on this, extra biblical resources that describe the time period and what was happening particularly among very, very wealthy women. The literature he references describes the cultural phenomenon becoming popular in this part of the Greco-Roman world at the time, in which women would take their hair and sort of heap it up like a beehive and weave in it gold and pearls. And it would take hours and hours and hours and hours, and it was expensive. And it was meant to be a display of one's wealth and sensuality. And apparently, women were beginning to dress that way in the church. And so what is supposed to be a place we gather to focus on God was becoming a place of show and of sensuality. Today, sort of piling up your hair doesn't communicate something sexually. And putting some kind of gold in your hair doesn't communicate great wealth. And so, those are different. You don't need to worry about braiding your hair or wearing some pearls or having a gold necklace. Ladies, that's not what God's saying. This passage does not encourage you to become an Amish or a Quaker. I'm not trying to be funny. Um, the point isn't you need to um, ride in a buggy to church. The point is, there's a principle that applies everywhere. The application of that principle is different here than it would have been there. Again, ladies, I'll leave it up to you to sort out what the current equivalence might be, because I may be dumb, 
but I'm not stupid. But I do know it doesn't involve those specific cultural applications. So the church is, this church is full of godly women who take their holiness seriously. And so if you're not sure how to apply this to yourself, a great thing to do would be to go to someone else in the body who you think does it well and talk with them about it. Ask them their opinion. Ask them to give you counsel. Ladies, the, the best application of this entire passage I could give you is obey Titus 2. Go to other women, particularly women who are older than you, and ask them for their encouragement and counsel into your life. Now, before uh, we go on, let's zoom out and again remember the point of the passage. Men, generally speaking, you may find yourselves particularly prone to sinful anger and quarreling. You may find as a gut reaction to something that your tendency is toward violence. Yet, by God's grace, you're to give yourself to having a holy heart displayed in holy prayer. That's for all men everywhere. Ladies, it is God's will that you concern yourself primarily with good works, not primarily with good looks. That's the first section, two sections of our passage. Believe it or not, those are the easy ones. The last one is far more challenging for us today. As we get into it, I want to say to uh, the women in particular um, how mu much I, uh, I have been a, I've worked on a church staff since I was 18. I'm 46. And I've never preached a sermon alone, let alone two, on this paragraph. These are things young pastors ought not do. And today, I am happy to be in an environment in which uh, the church is full of godly, uncontentious women who I'm confident may struggle to understand some of these things, but will labor to do so and to apply them. So uh, I... I love you, and I'm just wanting to encourage you today in what you're already doing. Ladies, understand um, that this passage, verses 11 to 15 especially, are not speaking about the ordering of society at large. Rather, it's singularly focused on the life and ministry of the local church. And so, these verses directly say nothing about what kind of job you get or what you do in broader society. That is not what these verses are about. They're about this. They're about the family of God. There are other passages that talk about the home and the ordering that exists in the home. And in God's wisdom, the home and the church are to model each other. They point back and forth. There's a reciprocal relationship between them. But there simply isn't anything in the entire Bible that directly addresses how the, the verses here 
should be applied in broader society. We just don't have data on that. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong to try to work out some implications and applications and even conscious kinds of uh, opinions about them that you would seek to apply. However, those belong in the realm of things about which godly, Bible-centered Christians can reasonably disagree. And you may have a particular um, conviction about something in that regard that someone else in the church you're very close to does not share. And God could, in fact, have directed one toward one conclusion and another toward another because we're different from one another. And so understand, ladies, that what we're going to talk about is not about the world writ large, but about the church. This means, yes, work out the implications, but do so with humility and charity and an open-handedness in which, for example, in a gospel community, you may have different women or different couples or different individuals reaching various conclusions about those matters. We must avoid binding each other's consciences or demanding uniformity among each other as members of the same church. God has left questions like what measure of authority or what kind of teaching women should do in the broader society to the individual conscience, not to the pastor or even the members one to another to decide. So with that in mind, would you hear those verses again, verses 11 and following? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. For obvious reasons, these are verses we should work through with tender love and Christian gentleness. So I hope you'll pray for me as I seek to serve you in that way. In many circles, those verses are, are scandalous. And in the first century, they would have been also but for very different reasons than they are today. You see, words like submissiveness, quiet, deceived, childbearing, do not permit, th those are the words that leap off the page. And particularly if you're not a Christian, you may think you just stepped into the weirdest bunch of Kool-Aid sipping bizarros you have ever heard of. Those words jump off the page to us. They would not have been the words that jumped off the page to anyone in the first century. Because the disruptive word in the passage in the day it was written would have been the word learn in verse 11. It's broadly attested, it's a historical fact that in Jewish, Roman, and Greek cultures, all three in the first century, Women were not allowed 
to participate in learning communities along with men. They were not allowed to participate because they were thought of as intellectually inferior. And therefore, it was men who got the teaching. Women did not. That's what made it so scandalous that among Jesus' disciples were women. And these women took the same posture as the men in these learning communities. But it is not to be so in the church of Jesus Christ, because God created male and female different, yes, but equal, equal in dignity, equal in worth. One sex is not inferior or superior relative to the other. That doesn't stand out to us today because more women go to college than men. Many of the people in this church who take their scriptures the most seriously are women. By far, more women read books than men. In fact, I would imagine if we added up the amount of books read by women in the last year in this church to the men, we would get circles run around us, men. Women are not intellectually inferior, as empirically untrue. Brothers, when it comes to salvation, and therefore to our unity in Christ, what Paul said in Galatians is, is so helpful here. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Wherever Christianity has been rightly understood, women have been lifted up because there is an equality embedded in the gospel. Then if that's not what verses 11 to 15 mean, what do they mean? Well, I'm glad you've asked. Ladies, there is an office of church leadership and a set of activities in church life that God does not place on your shoulders as a responsibility you are to fulfill. You'll see these two things listed in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach, that's, verse, that's uh, issue one, or responsibility one, or to exercise authority, that's two. Instead of teaching men, God calls you in the Christian community to a disposition of respect. And instead of exercising authority, God calls you in the language of the passage, to all submissiveness. Now, that does need some qualification and clarification. Take, for example, the word quietly. Quietly. Quietly, in the Apostle Paul's mind, as under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote that word. He did not mean absolute silence. He meant a disposition of quietness. He did not mean never make a peep. How do we know that? Well, godly women learn the Bible in a supportive and peaceful demeanor by submitting to the teaching of their elders as they preach God's word. That's what he meant by quietly. 
How do we know that? Well, let your eyes glance back up earlier in the passage to verse 2, where the same word is used. The same word is used to describe all Christians living a quiet life or living quietly. No one assumes by reading that verse that we're to all go around being uh, uh, mimes. Is that the right word? What are those called? Yeah. No one assumes that that's what he meant. Why would we assume any different in this paragraph? When you're struggling to interpret texts in the Bible, remember, words have meaning in context. So if you want to know what something means, read the broad context. It'll very often help you. Quiet life verse 11, does not demand women play no part in the worship gathering of the family of God. A way we can confirm that is that other New Testament verses indicate the appropriateness of women praying, women singing, women having um, a sharing of the gospel when God's people are together. Not to mention all the other things the New Testament directly commands women to do. Like, for example, number one, women teaching kids and other women. Number two, women giving themselves to every kind of word work. Number three, women even privately correcting the preacher, like Priscilla and Aquila did in the book of Acts. None of those things were inappropriate. In fact, it would have been inappropriate for them not to happen. Quietly, does not exclude any of those things. It means first and primarily that the regular preaching of the Scriptures and any environments in the church in which teaching is thought of as done with authority, that that must be done by men. These verses instruct us, Churchill Mill, to a basic matter of obedience. Godly, qualified men are to be the elders of the church. Teaching and authority are the main things that distinguish elders from the rest of the body. And they're not a, they're not a different class. They are primarily, elders are primarily, we tell the staff and the, the pastors of the church this constantly. Our basic relationship to church on mill is the same as everybody else's. We are first members. And then as members, we play an additional particular role that comes with extra responsibilities. But the basic commitment is not one of a job or one of an office, but one of being members of the body, just like you. And we're all that together equally, men and women. And it's not that all men who make up Church on Mill are inevitably fit to do what I'm doing right now. It's that God will call some of them and qualify some of them for that work. We'll talk about this more next week as we talk about eldership because that's the very next topic in the text. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. So again, words have meaning in context. When Paul says, 
I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority. What's, what's the smallest conclusion we should reach? Well, he's saying women can't be elders. Not because they're somehow inferior or incapable of the work, but because it's not in the design of God for you to carry that load. The pastoral office is limited to godly qualified men, and the activities of their office, which are what? Declaring the doctrine of the church in an authoritative way, and leading or having authority in the body. Those responsibilities are limited to godly, qualified, called, and by the way, affirmed by you, men. Now, we'll get to why in just a minute, but before that, I think it's wise here if we get some help, some additional information to confirm that that's the sense of this passage. I'm constantly looking for books on this because, frankly, Bad ones are constantly being produced. Up until about the 1960s, you cannot find literature written from a Christian perspective that disagrees with what I'm saying. It broadly does not exist. The teaching of the passage is so clear, so plain. But today there are um, seemingly hot off the press, constant new interpretations of the passage. And so I'm always looking for good books on it. My favorite one is written by somebody named Claire Smith. Claire Smith, the book is called God's Good Design. Men or women, if this is something you would like to learn more about, I would point you there, God's Good Design. Here's something that she says. Since not all men have the responsibility to teach and lead the congregation, Paul is not saying all women are to submit themselves to all men all the time. Rather, women are to be submissive in church when the teaching's happening to what is being taught and to those men who are teaching it. In practice, this means that women are not to be authoritative teachers of the gathered household of God. Instead, They're to learn from those men who labor in preaching. They're to learn with a quiet, willing, voluntary, I think every one of those words is significant, submissiveness, accepting what is taught and the authority of those teaching it. I could not say it better myself. I think she's exactly right. Now, you're doing great so far. Do you need a stretch? Get some of that tension out because we're about to get to the hardest part of the passage. Why? Why? Why is what Claire just said the way it's supposed to be? Well, because the Bible says so. Why does the Bible say so? Well, it hasn't left us to wonder. It hasn't left this to the realm of wisdom And it hasn't encouraged us to just view it as arbitrary or cultural. Rather, it's given us the reasons. 
Verses 13 and 14 give us the basis or the reason, and verse 15 concludes with, believe it or not, a word of encouragement. God does not call women to teach or exercise authority in the church because it was not the design of God from the very beginning. That's what those two reasons mean in verses 13 and 14. The passage tells us this by way of, number one, a positive observation, and number two, a negative example. So, a positive observation, verse 13, a negative example, verse 14. We'll spend just a moment on each of them. First, the positive observation, verse 13, Adam was created first, then Eve. Adam was created first, then Eve. Now, if you know the Genesis story, you might think, first of all, what difference does that make? Like, everybody knows the, the first year of a new car, you don't ever want to buy that one. Get the second year. So, go with the women, not the men, right? So, I mean, what difference does it make that they were first? And if you use that logic, shouldn't plants and animals be the ones teaching and leading because they were made before Adam. What's the point? The, the point is that Adam is in a sense the, the, the first human. He is that, not in a sense. But in that way, he's the firstborn son. And therefore, he bore responsibility for all of humanity. And there are all kinds of clues in Genesis 1 and 2 that pre-fall, he was responsible to lovingly lead his wife. The clues are everywhere. For example, he named her. She came from him. And then in a second, we'll get to the fall. So number one, There's the positive observation, Adam was created first. Number two, the negative example. Adam was not deceived, but Eve was. My early years of studying this verse years ago, it sounded to me like the passage was saying a positive reason, number one, Adam was made first, and then a a sort of discipline or consequence. Number two, see, Eve, you messed up. Adam didn't. I don't at all think that's what the passage is saying now. I believe what it's saying is, number one, Adam in the creation order was made first, and that came with responsibilities. And number two, Adam failed in those. And Eve was deceived and sinned, but Adam wasn't deceived and sinned, and that made it all the worse. Adam failed to lovingly protect and lead his wife. Eve took his place. That caused the fall. So the positive and negative are actually saying the same thing. Namely, there was a pre-fall creation order. And that pre-fall creation order applies in the home. There's other passages about that and in the church, in this one. So, the creation order of Genesis 1 and 2 
God creating Adam first and then Eve, and the negative example of what happened in the reversal of the creation order in Genesis 3, reveal the design of God for who has the teaching and authority responsibilities of the church. Let me say it again. Adam was to love and lead, to protect and provide. His equal was to submit and help. That was God's design and it's good. There's parity between the two. And yet in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve both fell into sin by not following God's design. But Adam bore the greater responsibility. Ladies, if that feels hard, I would say, first of all, I, th I think to the degree it's possible for me to as a man, I can understand that. I always tell women in premarital counseling, you are giving up something more in a sense than the man is because you're giving up the, the independent leadership of your own life. The man is taking on the responsibility to care for you in a way that he didn't before, so he's giving up something too. You're both gaining things that you don't have, but we're not exactly the same. Claire uh, is again helpful to us here. Here's another quote um, about Genesis 3. Genesis 3 makes it clear that they, Adam and Eve, sinned in different ways. Instead of trusting the truthfulness and goodness of God's word, Eve was deceived by the serpent and led into sin. And after she ate, she also led her husband into sin. Which, by the way, if you read Genesis 3 closely, where was Adam while that was happening? He's right by her. Adam, on the other hand, was given the responsibility to lead his wife, not listen to her and follow her into sin. He disobeyed by eating the fruit God had told him not to eat and by abdicating his responsibility of leadership to his wife. I encourage you to go back and read Genesis 3 closely, especially if this is not something you're familiar with. Uh, one final quote from Claire I think would help us. The pattern of male leadership and female submission that God first established is to be the pattern for the Ephesian, Ephesian church. And the disruption of that pattern seen in the fall is not to be repeated. That's what this passage is about. Now men, if you flex over this and think, see, we're in charge, then I would say to you, you don't understand it and you're not ready for it. The command to lead the home and the church is a burden to tremble at, not a right to arrogantly rejoice over. We are no smarter, no less easily deceived, nor superior to our female image bearers. We simply have a different set of responsibilities. Now, as we land this plane, and I got to do it quickly, verse 15. Verse 15 is admittedly an extremely confusing verse. There are two possible interpretations. Number one, some scholars say this is a reference to Mary and therefore a message about Mary's son, Jesus. That's possible, and there are great folks that I respect who believe that. 
but it doesn't strike me as plausible. The other interpretation seems far more likely, namely that childbearing is shorthand for the unique role women play in general in God's created order when compared to men. That would mean that childbearing is sort of a hyperlink that you could click on, and then all the instructions the Bible gives to women would appear. If that's what Paul had in mind, then he means simply this. Let me encourage you, women. I've said some hard things to you. Now let me lift you up. As one's rescued out of sin and now clothed with the righteousness of Christ, you, ladies, will come to the end fully in the blessings and reality of your salvation by respecting and submitting yourself to God's order established in the church. You need not usurp that design like Eve did. And even worse, Adam passively failed to protect her. Instead, relative to your own individual life and the different opportunities God gives you, rejoice in the roles God uniquely gives you, not men. Obey God in them. If in God's providence you have kids, nurture them well. Ladies, you are not less of a lady if you don't or can't have kids. If in God's providence you have no biological kids, there are other ways this nurturing, rearing instinct within you can be expressed in the life of the church. As you obey God in whatever roles He gives you, Show yourself as one adorned with good works, which are beautiful to God and which are a blessing to the people of God. Instead of fighting God's design, like Eve, submit yourself to it, like Jesus. And in so doing, you will be encouraged and lifted up and your salvation will be seen as sure. I think that's what verse 15 means. Both men and women must follow the Creator's gendered design in the church. Thank you for being a people among whom I could talk with this kind of paragraph and not fear my murder in the parking lot. (laughs) This coming Friday night, Dr. Peter Gurry, who is a recognized New Testament scholar, who's also an elder in his church, is going to come and talk with us about, we've looked at one isolated case of this teaching. He's going to help us think about the whole Bible. I want to encourage you all, please, to be here. This is a central matter of discipleship about which it's crucial we in the church see it the same way. And so I want to encourage you to be here. I think it will be a blessing to you. We'll begin at 7 on Friday night. Let me pray. God, thank you for your scriptures. We trust you. We ask for your help. Thank you for these brothers and sisters and their kindness and generosity to me. And I pray as especially the ladies work these things out in conversation that you would encourage them. I pray this in Jesus' name.